What is up, ladies and gentlemen of the online jamly? This, of course, here is Jamiroquai 2000 with a special interview episode of the Quiecast, a Jamiroquai podcast by the jamly for the jamly. In today's special interview episode of the Quiecast podcast, I am joined by one of the original guitarists of Jamiroquai, most notably from the uh, 90 three through 94 period a gentleman by the name of gavin dodds who uh was one of the you know original you should say session recorder um musicians of jamiroquai but otherwise was there at a very important time and a formula time of the early sound of jamiroquai and um he just recently put out a new solo album and um he reached out to me and uh we got to talking and i d- invited him on the quiecast to talk about the early days of jamiroquai and his musical evolution between samuel purdy to even the space monkeys which kind of was a kind of a secondary dub version of the very popular um, 21st century version of Sgt. Pepper's between Damon Albarn and Jamie Hillett called the Gorillas. So um, I would like to welcome um, Mr. Dodds to the Quiecast. Welcome to the Quiecast. Hi there, Brent. Uh, it's really lovely for you to invite me on, onto this Quiecast, mate. So I'm not sure what I've got to add, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, Gavin, it's very lovely to have you here on the Quiecast. So let me get to my questions. Um, the first question would be that uh, being one of the first Jamiroquai guitarists of Jamiroquai between the 93 to 94 period, what was the early lineup of Jamiroquai like? What was the like? What was the personalities? What was the individuality? I, I realize that a lot of early Jamiroquai musicians were mostly session musicians, but what was the early Jamiroquai lineup like? Right, early lineup, Brent. Well, um, again, this is 30 years ago. <laughs> So, um, so the old grey matter is getting the work out. It was um, obviously Tobes was playing keys, Stuart was on bass, Nick Van Gelder on drums. Um, the, I think the very first show um, I did at the Town and Country Club, I think Kofi was on percussion with that. Um, on the horns would have been Gary Barnacle and Johnny Thurkle. Uh, there would have been others actually on that. It might have been um, uh, either Winston. Uh, do you know what? Again, I'm, I'm going back. There was quite a few horn players that were involved in those days. Um, this was pre-Darren DJ Desire. He wasn't there then. Um, I think I've said it all, but I remember that. Um, yeah, that was my first show. I mean, that, that was quite an extraordinary one. I, I, I got the gig through uh through nick i was playing in another band at the time um and we i I remember we were supporting corduroy um at the orange in west ken and for whatever reason nick was on drums that night when we we were playing and that was the first time i'd met nick he then sort of had a little i can't even remember quite how it happened but he just said oh um are you up for doing a gig at the weekend and I just said, who with? He said, well, Jamiroquai, we need a guitar player. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and then I got a call from Kevin Simpson, who was the, who was the manager. But I, I was working at the time. I was a typographer in um, working for Pam McMillan Publishers. So I had a job, a proper nine to five. So I was literally going to work and then traveling out to Ealing every night. Um, and again, if my, I just, it's really kind of hazy, but I remember sort of meeting the guys off the tube and then being taken around some back streets. And then I, I have vague memories of going up a ladder and around a corner and up this. And, and there was this tiny little room that we were in around the back of someone's house almost. And just running through all the tracks that we were going to do in a few days time. 
Um, and that was it. And, and, you know, there was, I'm just literally writing down the chords of these tunes and I'm sure somewhere I've still got a piece of paper with it all scribbled on. And it really was the jam on part of Jamiroquai was absolutely, we were on the seat of our pants, mate, doing that gig because uh, um, just watching for cues from Jay to know when to stop and start. That was, <laughs> that was a lot of my early memories of Jamiroquai. Sorry, I'm already waffling, but um, yeah, I've given you the names of the band, the band members and started talking nonsense already. So uh, yeah, I think I've, yeah, I can't remember anyone else who was on that show. That is really, really interesting. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the band lineup was, like I said, just pretty much people who didn't know each other, but uh, they were just up on, on that stage and creating absolute magic. And this leads me into my next question. Um, based off all the media I've seen over that period from those early years, um, a lot of on-the-spot improvisation was happening in this early live period of Jamiroquai's history, most notably between 92 through 94. What was your favorite story about these like very um, orgasmically um, bombastic moments of like improvisational um, musical composition and uh, music making well we briefly had a chat before you started this interview brent so you're going to get bored but i'll tell you the craziest one was when we uh recorded the track tighten up um and we used to do that uh sort of live but this this was totally impromptu the story with that was um nick van gelder had uh, a mixtape and we were in france um doing Nulpaya was a show which was quite a big show and we were just rehearsing the uh, the performance for later on in that day and nick was playing archie bell on the drills tighten up on the tape um which we were just listening to before we started the, the sound check um we then got on the stage and i just played the the opening riff which is just the two chord thing Nick just joins in straight away. I remember, I remember all the bands sort of appearing separately on stage. Like Stu then turns out, he starts playing the beeline. Toby then turns out, he starts playing straight off. And then Jay arrives, and we're already grooving to tighten up. And um, so Jay then just starts scatting, doing his thing over it. Um, and then we stopped, and then did our track. I think we were doing Too Young to Die or something that, for, for that show. But then this carried on later on into uh, into the evening. We were playing Le Cirque de Minuit. It was the Midnight Circle, which was quite a highbrow um, TV show where they would talk about books and um, film and uh, art and stuff. And then literally we were supposed to close the show. It was two tracks. I think we'd done one and we were supposed to close, close the show and the closing credits were going to come up. And Jay just turns around to us and goes, let's bust that thing you were doing in sound check earlier on in the day and i just looked i just thought you gotta be kidding man <laughs> and uh so the next minute i'm in, i turn around to johnny and gary who were on horns and i'm literally singing or humming this little horn line to him that it breaks down to in the middle of this tune um and you'll hear it because it, it's uh, ended up on cd and it's now on video and we were fudging man. i mean that was it was it's good. It's a vibe. It was fun, but um, we were making out as we go along. So that, that that absolutely is the jam in Jamiroquai. That happened a lot, man. And um, it was a hit and miss. I'd like to think more hit than miss, but it would happen quite a bit um, where someone would go off on a tangent on a tune and do something. And uh, to be honest, I suppose these were little breaks for Jay in the middle of in the middle of a show. He would uh, 
something would happen and we'd go off on it and Jay would have a little break. And that was, we all enjoyed it. It was kind of nice, but, you know, trying to, well, we all know that this was an outrageous band that I was really fortunate enough to play in and it was sort of kept me on the seat of my pants a lot. Um, and for me, it was just, I just spent my time, if that was going to happen, I was just thought, right, we'll just listen, see what's going on, see what Toby's doing, see what Stu's doing and try not to get in the way. I mean, that was uh, the way I would listen to it. And that's the way I took it, hopefully. I probably did get in the way, but anyway. Um, I hope that answers that question, sort of. Yeah, that that is an absolutely amazing story. And yes, we did discuss that before the recording of this uh, special episode of uh, the QuietCast podcast, and just <laughs> absolutely awesome story. Uh, leads me to my next question. Um, did you ever have a hand in any of the early composition work in the studio or demo work? If so, on which demos? Now, th- my knowledge of the early days of Jamaic Y is mostly revolves around the Nomi rehearsals of 93, where um, there were a lot, and some of the live stuff, like Funky 7 and Friends, and um, a lot of the really improvisational work of that period. But uh, did you have any hand in, specifically in the studio, in any of the like any compositional work or demo work of any of the early Jamiroquai demos, if they're known or not known, right? It was a very quick answer to that, which is no. Um, I uh, I didn't do a lot. I, I did. Um, I'm on Revolution on the, on the original album, and if I like it, I do it. I'm on that, which is at Marcus Studios. Um, uh, what else was I doing? But listen, if, I, if I'm being honest, I, I, I was very rarely given any parts to play at all. It's on, on the live stuff, it's really what I can talk about. Every now and again, Jay might have a, an idea or a line and he would sing it to you in the rehearsal room, you know, or he would say, can you do this? Can you do that? Um, but other than that, it was just, he would kind of trust you, man, to, to, just to do what you did. Um, and the stuff they were doing in the studio, it really wasn't, I wasn't getting called to do that at all. I mean, I actually didn't know a lot of these tracks. There's, um, when we did uh, Mr. Moon, for example, I played a part on that um, when we played the Astoria. Uh, again, it's online, I've seen it. Um, I'd never heard it. I didn't know the track. And so I just did my own thing on it. This is a prime example of uh, just doing my own thing and Jay would just like if he liked it he liked it if he didn't it, well I don't remember him saying don't do that um and so I, I I've played a totally different part to what ended up on the record um but it's kind of cool it kept it fresh and I suppose that's kind of I suppose how Jay liked it again even if you listen to sort of earlier versions of, of Too Young to Die and stuff we very rarely played it like the records um it's not what he wanted, I suppose, live. He just wanted different stuff and playing, you know, whatever was working, whatever we were vibing on. That was how it happened. But um, when it came to sort of writing, I mean, I I, I remember people playing. I remember Darren, DJ Desire coming in with um, Taking a Pelham 123, David Shire um, soundtrack. And I've got, a, I distinctly think this is where just another story came from. There's that beeline that came directly from that from their soundtrack and i remember sort of watching that hearing that in this in rehearsals people then jumping on it playing it and then it dawning on me a few months later when we were playing it live and people already knew the lyric and were sort of singing it back and i remember thinking this 
this was done off the soundtrack you know not so long ago I, I remember sort of that leaving an impression on me thinking wow this is people listen to everything man. this is kind of nuts but um yeah again a bit like my previous answer the jam part of it was was very prevalent in those certainly in those days it was just people got on it and did their thing and jay would let would let you which was kind of nice it was uh yeah that's it hope that answers it that is very very interesting I, I did not know that bit about just another story and uh thank you for sharing that i it is my favorite jamiroquai song out of all the albums of course from jamiroquai's uh, magnus opus album from 1994 the return of the space cowboy anybody listening to this episode of the quietcast podcast go back and listen to that album with a fine tooth comb and i'm talking about the fine tooth comb that was used in the desert of space balls but anyway i digress let me move on to my next question um you departed you departed jamiroquai in 1994 what were your reasons for leaving jamiroquai and what were your thoughts of how Jamiroquai's sound has evolved over the past 30 years of their musical output and history. Right, well, it was a very simple answer. Um, I had my own record deal. Um, I had a band called, I was in a band called Samuel Purdy. Um, and the irony was we were signed to LRD at Sony, the same fourth floor at Great Marble Street. It was the same same division of Sony that Jay was signed to. And... Um, there was me and my naivety thinking this is going to be great this is my turn <laughs> um didn't quite work out like that but um but that's the reason i left i, I was under pressure from from uh the whole samuel purdy guys um because we had we had an album to record and we had uh we had recording studios booked to go so i i, I do remember it was a heavy heart that i think we were Jamiroquai was just about to come out to do Japan again and, and go to Australia, which I'd never been. There's the irony I now live it. And I remember being quite, oh, damn, I'd really love to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, we look back and do we have any regrets in our life? And I never believe people look at, no, I don't have any regrets at all. Everything's fine. Um, yeah, I do. Massive regrets <laughs> leaving Jamiroquai when I did. I, 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 looking back, I should have done the two things at, at the same time, and, and um, I didn't. Um, but saying that, I left on good terms with the guys, and I've always been on good terms since. So, had I hung around, that might not have stayed that way. Um, but that was the reason I left Jamiroquai. Um, so, the second part, how do I feel the sounds evolved? Um, I don't know. I answer that really. I mean, it's it's. I've I've been impressed with every member who's been in the band. Um, I mean, personally, I left and Cy Katz came in. I didn't know Simon, obviously, before. And I, I got to know him, became a mate of mine. He ended up living with Darren, DJ Desire. Darren's still a very close friend of mine. Um, so Simon actually came in and did some of the Space Monkey stuff we did with Gorillaz. And, of course, he ended up doing Gorillaz. So, so I knew Cy really well, loved, always dug his playing. Um, and as a guitarist, then you know, Rob, Rob Harris is in it. I don't know Rob. I've met him once when he came out to Oz. But I mean, he's an outrageous player, man. Just a monster. So I couldn't have competed with him. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I love uh, Matt, the, the new keyboard player. I knew he's probably been there twenty years. Um, his playing's fantastic, man. And I watch his YouTube videos because I just really dig him. He's brilliant. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I just, I mean, do I? I Obviously, listen, I, I prefer early Jamiroquai because I know it, I was part of it. And um, But do I, uh, I appreciate it all, man. It's great. I mean, I'm just kind of amazed that 30 years later, it's still going. It's fantastic. It's really good. 
he's and Jay's recently been out here was in Adelaide I'm, I didn't go out there to watch it but I don't know I just sort of I, I remember really early days when there was that what was that ridiculous campaign that was around when we were doing early shows and there was this poster campaign was was it young stupid and white or something um and i just think i look back on that and think right well 30 years later mate, who's stupid now man? it's just um I'm, it's just impressive it's just hats off literally buffalo health well done jay good lad yeah, I I could see I could see your point of view, um, kind of preferring the early days of Jamiroquai, given your uh, a more important uh, contribution to the early sound of Jamiroquai and how the sound has evolved so radically um, since those days. And we in the Jamly kind of separate that Jamiroquai song f sound from the from Mercy Planet Earth to probably synchronize or I should say. Um, AFO would be considered the old sound, and then from that point further, all the way up to 2017's Automaton, that's considered the new sound. So I can I can see your point of view on the um, you know preferring the old sound rather than the new radical uh, Futura funk uh, kind of melange kind of direction they went with their sound over the last 30 years. But uh, awesome answer. Uh, this now this now my questions lead into your music, your solo music output um, you did thereafter 1994, uh, leaving Jamiroquai. Um, and as you've uh, touched on in some of your great answers in this interview, um, after you left Jamiroquai, a little while later, you formed a musical duo, duo with Barney Hurley called Samuel Purdy. In 1999, after releasing one album entitled Musically Adrift, may I say an extremely awesome one-off album that is sprinkled generously with lovely shades of, of hollow notes and debarge. Yes, I went to the debarge reference. Um, but tell the Jamley how this project came about and how you thought this album turned out. Well, that album was... Um, Barney was an old an old mate of mine from school. Uh, well, actually, ironically, the, the mate of mine was Kieran Hurley, who was uh, he, who co-owned Acid Jazz at the time. So I can go into sort of more Jamiroquai stuff if you want with that. But um, Kieran was my old manager, and his brother Barney was I was he was a mate of mine from we were kids, and this was the first band I was in. I think we were called Out of the Blue. Hilarious looking back. Um, Barney was a drummer. I was the guitarist in that, and we would play old Stax covers and. We do move on up, Curtis and um, Otis tunes and stuff. You know, we probably murdered them, but so we always had an. I always had a thing with Barn, which was like, well, if it all works out one day, we'll definitely do something. We'll try and um, do a band. Ironically, Barney was actually did a few gigs with Jamiroquai. Again, that that as rare as entities. I mean, there's probably no people, not many people know that one. Um, Barney, I think, did about two shows with 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 Jamiroquai, really early shows. Um, but anyway, so whilst doing early Jamiroquai, um, I had, we were started writing, we were doing stuff at Acid Jazz. Um, and I, again, regrets, we talk about, um, I remember getting the call, I think from Kevin to come into the studio, they were doing blow your mind. And I was, I was in the studio with Sam, was I in the studio with Samuel Purdy? Or I actually had a gig. I had another gig with another band and stupidly. Again, I was young. I was wet behind the ears. I didn't know. I didn't want to, you know, blow somebody out at the last minute. So I didn't go to that session. <laughs> uh, that's another regret. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Samuel Purdy was, I had this sort of thing going while, whilst doing Jamiroquai. Um, and we were re we were recording down at Acid Jazz, just sort of doing demos, sort of not, not quite sure where we thought it was going to go um 
and then Kieran, who was managing us, he got us a deal, um, which is why we did it. But the, the idea, I mean, to be honest, we all, we stuck our necks out a bit here. We, we had a, la a love of Steely Dan. I still do. Um, and I think you mentioned Hall and & Oates and Chicago. And, uh, yeah, that, that old sort of AOR, they call it Yacht Rock now, I guess. Um, and as much as I've always loved, I love everything, the best of everything. Um, we were going to, this was where this was angled. It was more in the sort of, rather than the sort of funk and soul thing, which we certainly wanted to do and we, we loved. But it was trying to sort of songwriting and, and basing it in songs as well, which was, uh, um, we really dug that. So we were trying to sort of carve out at the wrong time. <laughs> um that kind of uh that kind of those kind of tunes and those kind of, that kind of music which again looking back the way we wanted to do it we thought oh we'll do our own we'll we'll pretend to be steely dan and do a british version of it um which uh, i guess well you're never going to do it to that extent but it kind of worked we we recorded a good record but in whilst doing it we spent a fortune so almost the second we signed to sony we were annoying them straight away because we were just spending money hand over fist and uh and then going off to the states and getting it mastered and mixed and mastered by elliot shiner you know all these great great um you know mixing engineers and then coming back and still not being happy with stuff so we were just annoying people which is why we eventually got dropped but um there was just you know there's a numerous stories in between how we got that record going but it took about a year in the studio to do that and the jamiroquai link with that again well Apart from, I mean, Johnny Thurkle's all over that. Mike Smith's all over it. But Stuart played on. We did a Carol King cover uh, called "Bitter with the Sweet," and that 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 Stuart playing bass on that, um, which was really cool to get him in. Um, but that's where it came. I mean, that that album, <clears throat> it came out in '99, but it, it was recorded a few years before that. Um, but we got dropped by Sony and then couldn't get arrested because we spent so much money. So no one wanted to take on the project and pay Sony back their money. We eventually got a deal in Japan. And so that's it's it's been released on numerous occasions still to this day. So it's kind of still its test. There's a dusty little corner of the internet with some nutty Samuel Purdy fans who still love it and bless them. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I left Shimmeraquai. Um, to do that record, it's out there. I love it. It's still good, but um, yeah, that's. I can't even remember what the question was. I'm answering now, Brett. Cheers, mate. But hopefully, that answers it. Cheers, mate. Yeah, I, I I did some good research before this uh, interview because I take any interview with any band member of Jamiroquai very seriously, and I at least want to be a person there who has done the research and listened to the music. And um, like I said, I I listened to that that one off album from Samuel Purdy, and it was just absolutely a hidden gem. Absolutely awesome. Like I said, Hall Notes, The Barge, lots of lots of shades of early um, R&B and soul in there. I really loved it. Um, but this leads into my next question, your next musical project that would come after Samuel Purdy, of course, you know, you got dropped. Um, you formed a virtual uh, music band called Sam Space Monkeys, along with your fellow music producers, uh, Darian Galea and Richie Stevens, and uh, released an amazing gorilla-supported dub album entitled Laika Come Home. Um, and, of course, Jamiroquai has a history with uh, dub music, but that's, of course, in another stratosphere in another place. But uh, do you think you could have taken Space Monkeys either further musically after this mainstream-approving debut a dub album effort? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I definitely do. And it's a shame that it never really happens. Um, I think after we did the records, <clears throat> um, 
I am thinking back here. This is again, this is 20 years ago, man. Um, yeah, I think there, there was a few decisions again made there about, you know, you talk about regrets and stuff. I remember we got Damon asked us to do the Meltdown Festival um, at the Barbican. I think David Bowie was, it was sort of his thing, and he'd asked Gorillas to perform, and Damon didn't want to do it. And then he asked us if we would do it instead. And I remember having a meeting at, um, CMO, who was Damon's manager at the time, and they were trying to put a budget together for doing this record, sorry, for doing this show, um, which would have been quite a big deal. And it was, they were really being tight on it. And we, we just, we want, didn't, we wanted to do the record justice and didn't want to skimp on anything. And so in the end, uh, I remember again, I suppose it's, you know, we decided it probably was not, not going to be right. So we didn't want to do it. But then we ended up doing a, a Radio 1 session with Steve Lamack, a live session, and it was really good. And um, I remember thinking, we should have done that gig. And, and, and had we done that big show at, um, at the Barbican, maybe things would have been different and we'd have got more work from it. We, we did, I mean, there was some more work that came out of Space Monkeys. I remember we did a Herbert Gronemeyer. He, he was a German artist who, who actually got to number one with his track called Mention. We, we'd done a remix on that that was on that um and we did some other sessions stereo mcs was another one they were a big art a big act back in the day and we did some stuff with them i don't think that ever came out i don't know so there was, there was we had a bit of management for a short amount of time but uh, we didn't really uh we, we we should have just gone for it a bit heavier i reckon and, and then maybe space monkeys would have had more of a life afterwards because that, that was a great record um and uh uh, there was talk, without a doubt. We wanted to do a record with a collaboration on 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 every track, and I remember there's even talk about oh, you know, feasible we could get Jay to do a track, and then Boy George because because um, Richie had Culture Club links, and Misha Paris. There was there was various artists we were, we were talking to to try and do something. It just didn't happen, um, like so many things. Um, so it's a shame. Um, Jay. Um, um, Darren and Richie are still around. I'm still in touch with them. And um, Darren Blessing was actually saying, uh, this new project I got, Mighty Mares, he said, oh, let, let's do a, a remix of that, which I'd be bang up for, by the way. And I've told him I'm up for it. But um, it's a bit tricky because this isn't like a normal release. It's it's library music that B&G own half of it. So I'm not sure how it's going to work. So I've got to get to the bottom of that. But that we might see. You, who knows? There might be a... Uh, Space Monkeys remix of a mess chain. We'll see. I hope so. Be good. That is definitely something I would definitely look forward to because I, um, as I just uh, talked to you before this uh, interview had started, um, I thought the Space Monkeys was a great concept and the idea of a dub album from a pop group was just unheard of in the mainstream at that time. And um, it's kind of, kind of, I, I feel for you on uh, not being able to spread out to other potential artists like you mentioned, of having dub albums of their music or translations of their music to be released uh, into, uh, you know, into the uh, pop mainstream to, you know, kind of possibly get a ball rolling for an interest, a reinvigoration of 
dub music, which is very, very integral in a lot of the b-boy and hip-hop culture, or the DJ culture, I should say. And this leads me into your current musical project. Um, uh, you need to return with a new uh, musical project called Mighty Mez. Uh, you released a new album this year in 2023 called Let's Go Shorty. Uh, sort of a musically ethereal returning to the funk acid jazz vein of your period with Jumeric Wine, and a little bit with Samuel Purdy. Um, and it's an addictively great album. How did Mighty Mez come together as a band, and do you think it shares a lot of musical attributes of your previous musical works with Jamiroquai, Samuel Purdy, and Space Monkeys. Yeah, no, thanks, Brent. Um, yeah, Mighty Mez, that came around through, uh, if I'm being honest, through lockdown, um, where, I, well, since I've been in the in, in Australia, I, I was basically teaching music. I've been teaching for about 15 years. And then um, lockdown happens and that just disappeared overnight and I just thought what am I going to do now that kind of and then I've been doing some work with a mate who I've obviously met since being here um Adam Alexander who's uh who has um a company called Bam Bam Wolfgang who are a sound design composition sound design for any all aspects of media whether it be film or online stuff and I've been doing bits and pieces with him, sort of documentaries and TV ads and Disney uh, toy adverts, all sorts of stuff, which would be quite good. I quite enjoyed it because it's music without any kind of, you know, I don't have to get um, precious about anything. It would kind of, it was, it was trying a different skill, if anything, that was still musical based. But he then said to me that he, he was in touch with, um, well, this was another, uh, it was BMG who, who uh, got in touch with him. He knew guys from BMG in Australia who said, and then he said to me, what, do you want to do some library music? And I said, well, of course, no problem, whatever you want to do. Um, and he was in touch with, with them. And then we started, and, and the idea, well, I think they knew my background and it was like, the, the remit was pop funk. And I just said, well, what, what do they want? What's pop funk? So it was a bit broad. And I just said, all right, you know, they knew my background. I thought, okay, well, let's just do this. And um, there was a guy, bless him, called Lefroy, who was working for BMG at the time. And he came in and we'd started doing this thing. And um, I just thought, you know, I, you know, I, I had no, pop funk was as vague as anything. And, and I'm kind of into, uh, well, you know the stuff I'm into, you know, from, from early Jamiroquai, very, very cl clearly. But I just thought, well, I can't just do something that's a pastiche of the 70s still, even though you can probably hear it in there. But I wanted it to sonically sound different. So I, I kind of, you know, I'd been listening to the Anderson Pack and Pharrell and The Weeknd and, you know, things like that. And I just thought, well, I've got to get elements of that in there. But, um, but it really came down to... Um, yeah, I, w I was absolutely going to hark back to... to the funk and the soul stuff that I, I, I still love and still listen to um, and using early vintage vintage 70s and 80s synthesizers on there and just giving it a well. So we did sort of three tunes initially um, and then it all went a bit, uh, what happened there? Um, Lefroy lost, <laughs> they ended up moving from BMG and he went to another company called Audio Network and I thought, all right, well, this is all going to go up the pitches. It's not going to happen. And then I got contacted from another guy, John, in BMG in the UK. There's the irony. He said, listen, this has just landed on my desk. I've got three tracks. It's really cool. What's, what's, what's going on here? What's supposed to be happening? And, and then we said to John, oh, we're doing an album. Um, 
and he goes right cool let's do it let's do it let's do it so it took a long time because this is in between adam doing other work so anytime there was a, the studio was free we'd go in there and, and chip away um until we had sort of nine tracks up and running and finally finished them but it is it's not you know a normal release as such like we haven't put a record out you go to the shops buy it and down, i mean you can still download it buy it, but it's library music so this goes on bmg's site and this is for music supervisors to find music to go with their ad with their ads or a tv commercial or on a movie or, or for anything so um how it's been delivered to bmg is each track is there's about six versions of each tune and there's 30 second versions of this and there's instrumentals of all sorts of stuff so um but we're in the lap of the gods brent uh, you know i'm hoping we dig it they dig it if anything it's saying it's library music it's not really you can kind of you can definitely hear i've, I've written an album here, um, like a conventional record and that's just the way i've had to do it so who knows what will happen but ultimately lefroy who's now audio network uh, he's asked us to do another one so we're, we're i'm in the midst of doing another med record which is good and um I enjoy it and I, I literally just sit at home and carve them out, get them together, get verses going, get grooves going, get drums happening, get keyboards on there. And then I take them to my mate Adam and we record all the acoustic instruments, all guitars, do all the vocals. Um, hopefully we'll get some strings on this new one and I hope it won't take as long as the last one. But that's how it's happened really. So it's just myself and Adam um, who put in this project together. Um, but if anyone again if anyone's interested in in the name mighty mez it, it, just google it it's it's there was a guy called mez mesra who was uh, a clarinet player in the 30s and 40s um who was a white guy who was just who ensconced himself in african-american culture and music and he loved it and that was it he was quite he's quite an out there guy um to the extent that he got arrested once for dealing to all his all his black mates and he insisted on being put in the cells with all, with all this with all the black guys he didn't want to be on the white side of the cell you know this this guy was kind of revolutionary and i just think he was brilliant i can't think of a, a better guy to name a band after really i, I just thought he was amazing um so that's where Me the mighty mez comes from um it comes from a little it's a it's a head nod to that guy mez measure who was uh, a bit of a, a you know an iconic revolutionary guy um Again, I'm waffling again. I apologize to all your listeners. I'm just uh, getting old. That's a very interesting story about the origin of the name uh, Mighty Mez and uh, the, the work on your album. And I think it's absolutely awesome. And I do hope this will lead on to future Mighty Mez projects, remixes, what whatever comes across your table. But I, I just love the idea of being able to record music between two people and just uh, put it out there and hopefully it gets out there into the ether. Um, this, this leads me to my final question of this interview. Um, and lastly, uh, do you think of the Jamly as a whole, the Jamiroquai fan community, over the past 30 years, do you look back proudly on your time and your contribution to the music of the early days of Jamiroquai? Yeah, it's it's kind of mind blowing, really. Um, I'm always kind of, uh, I sort of, I am, and I'm not amazed. I mean, I've, you know, it's been thirty years, so you never think when you first do something like that as a session player, just turn out, will you do a gig? Yeah, I'll do a gig, and then thirty years later, I'm still talking about it. It's kind of mad. Um, the, again. I, I go back even earlier than that when with, with knowing and being aware of Jamiroquai because my good mate Kieran, he, he co-owned Acid Jazz record label. 
and I was like a little kid, just kind of in awe of what my mate was doing. And I'd go up to Denmark Street um, and just hang out, stealing T-shirts, nicking records, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's what I first met Jay up in uh, Acid Jazz, and I remember him being skipping around the. Uh, the uh, the offices there, and in in his hand he had we called it a PMT in the print, a photo mechanical transfer of the Buffalo Man that he'd done himself, and he was he was showing it to everybody because he was really chuffed with it, and rightly so because it's brilliant, um, and that's where I first met met Jay. And I just thought, wow, this is this guy's interesting, um, and I again I remember my mate telling me. Uh, we've just signed this bloke, and this is this isn't PC now. He could he goes, he's, we've signed this bloke. He's brilliant. He sounds like a bird. He said to me, and I thought, oh wow, okay. Um, and then I heard, I heard when you're going to learn. I thought that is brilliant. And then I remember there was a, um, I think it was an acid jazz Christmas party. It was at the Town and Country Two, the TNC Two, which is in Islington. Um, and you and Jay was was a full hat full everything you'd see him out in clubs with that on so he, he wasn't this was for real this is what jay was like back in those days but i remember jay singing to a dat at that christmas party and then dancing on the tables and i, I just thought this guy's out there man he's uh it's he's quite something so to think of sorry i'm waffling again but to think that 30 years later it's like well that's where it started um no one kind of knew um I get and so even thinking back on when you're going to learn because I knew that tune. <laughs> I don't know if people had spoken about this, but we Johnny Hammond. I remember on the back of it, he just said, "Johnny H, you know who you are." This is that track, "La Conquistadores Chocolates," which is where where the chorus comes from. And um, I'm probably not dropping Jane. It, I can't be the first one who's ever said this, but um, and I remember again on the early tours. That we'd be on in the bus, and I remember playing that Johnny Hammond tune. Was playing in the in the in the track we were in in the in the bus we were in, and uh, Gary Barkle and John Thurkle th thinking it was the demo for when you're going to learn. <laughs> I do remember that as well. And we go, no mate, it's the Johnny. So there, there's the irony, Johnny H. You know who you are. It was like on the back of that acid jazz track. But I mean, you know, that's when I was first became aware of of, uh, of Jamiroquai. Um, and it was a buzz. I mean, I just remember thinking, this is brilliant. This 12 inch is amazing. Um, I did go and see, they played at the Brixton. I think they supported, was it the heavies? I'm pretty sure. And I, I went to that. I, def I definitely went to that. That's right. And I definitely went to that gig and saw that and thought, this is great. Um, and I, I, yeah, I don't know. Did they have a guitarist on that show? I don't even know if they even did. But um, yeah, then there it was, you know, clicking fingers and a few weeks later I was in the band, but um, it was uh, all happened very, very quickly. Um, and then 30 years later, I'm sitting there talking to you, Brent, about it, which is, that's what's mind blowing, it's crazy. Um, but then you look back at a body of work, it's totally understandable, it's, it's credible, it's good. This stuff's been great and um, he's still going. Good on him. Yeah, I actually seen those photographs of that um, purported acid jazz party with Jay uh, with the hat, with the full 
fake animal fur hat covered in beads and wearing his, the the Bermuda shirt that apparently him and Toby actually borrowed back and forth. Um, Toby and him, um, they did a photo shoot with Stuart and Jay. During all the time, would be wearing this um, Argent like a like a like a Colombian Argentinian shirt, and in the in the photo shoot with the three of them next to each other. Toby was wearing it, so they did share laundry <laughs> and shirts on the road, which I thought was just absolutely hilarious. But uh, that comes to this brings me to the end of my interview with you, uh, Gavin. Um, thank you for uh, take accepting this invica- invitation to the Quiecast podcast, and um, I have to dare say this is one of the best interviews I've done with least a literally band member. I've still got a few more band members I have in mind uh, whenever you interview here on the Quiecast, but um. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your contribution to the music of Jamiroquai. If I'm, of course, I'm probably going to be speaking on behalf of the Jamley, but we appreciate all the band members, even session musicians that were there during that important uh, early days of Jamiroquai in the early formative years, and we all appreciate you highly, and I appreciate you even further with all of your musical work you've done with um, through Samuel Purdy, through Space Monkeys, and of course your current project, Mighty Mez. And anybody in the online Jamley, um, be sure to check out Mighty Mez. Be sure to check out Sammy Purdy on wherever you consume your music on social media. It is amazing music and it deserves to be heard by everybody. So if you like it, you hear it, be sure to do some word of mouth about it and get it spread out there. Um, and again, thank you, Gavin Dobbs, for being here on the Quiecast. Thanks a lot, Brent. It's my pleasure, man. Um, I'm happy to share any of these stories with you anytime, mate. It's been a pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, if anyone wants to listen to Mighty Mez, just get onto Spotify now and um, Hope you enjoy that as well. And you might know a little bit more of where I'm coming from, hopefully. Um, but yeah, thanks, Brent. It's been good, man. Cheers. Yeah, like I said, thank you, Gavin, for being here on the Quiecast. And uh, if you like what you hear on the Quiecast podcast, everyone out there, uh, be sure to follow us on Podcasters on Spotify, the Spotify music streaming platform. And, of course, the select episodes of the Quiecast podcast I upload on my on my own Instagram, at JamiraFan2000. As always, this is JamiraFan2000. Thank you again for listening to the Quiecast podcast. And I'll see you again really soon with more Jamiraquai-related content and hopefully some more interviews here on the Quiecast the a Jamiroquai white podcast by the jamly for the jam thank you again everybody for the support throughout 2023 and i look forward to bringing you much more into 2024 bye bye everybody and take care